0: Welcome to Forest Landscape Stories Podcasts. I'm Alexander from Open Forests. As a guest, we are connected online with Brian Cohen in Beijing, China. Brian is the director of global program at International Bamboo and Rattan Organization, also called INBAR, which is an intergovernmental organization that promotes the use of bamboo and rattan for sustainable development. But before starting with the interview I want to give you a few facts about bamboo and the sector. There are about 30 million hectares of bamboo in tropical and subtropical areas of the world. It is one of the fastest growing plants. Certain species can grow up to 1 meter a day. Even though species grow very tall like trees, bamboo belongs to the grass family. Bamboo and Rattan contribute to the livelihood in different ways. They provide food, fiber, and fuel, resulting in thousands of different products. Its sector is estimated to be worth 60 billion US dollars a year. Bamboo has the potential to replace emission-intense materials like steel, aluminum, concrete, and PVC. In this way, it can act as a great carbon sink. In this interview, we will discuss Bamboo and Rattan's potential for restoring degraded landscapes and as a sustainable local income source. Thank you, Brian, for taking the time and a warm welcome. Good to be with you, Alexander. Thank you for
1: having me. Thank you for uh, this opportunity to talk, uh, talk with you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so before we are getting more into the topics of your work, I want to start with a A little bit more personal question. So when you're looking back to your youth and college time, um, what initially inspired you to work in natural resources management, forestry and sustainable development? Has there been a special experience that motivated or inspired you? Mm. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yes, actually, absolutely. I think you're actually going to like the answer to this question because I'm betting uh, that it's very similar to your own inspiration. If I can uh, take the measure of you, uh, as I've seen from your organization's website and so on. Um, Perhaps uh, we share a similar uh, source of inspiration and and maybe also uh, you've oriented your organization, uh, uh, the values of your organization in in a similar way. I'm passionate about promoting uh, sustainable forest management and environmental management uh, around the world. And just as Open Forest emphasizes the, the importance of humanity's renewed connection to nature, Mm-hmm. My own passion for environmental management and the inspiration uh, came about from a series of experiences that I, that did just that. They connected me to nature. So I'm 15 years old. I'm living in Kenya uh, as a as a young man, uh, and I had the great privilege of being exposed to the Masai Mara, to Amboseli. To Savo, mm. to some of these iconic landscapes, um, and that really did so much to me in in instilling in me uh, a an absolute awe and reverence for 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 nature. You know, I had the 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 luxury of bumping around in Land Rovers with my family and um, and and friends, uh, and it really, I mean, it did so much. Um, it, but it, the funny thing was, it wasn't just with the families. I'd oftentimes find that those moments of greatest inspiration for me in nature were those moments where I found myself alone, uh, either in in Kenya, or I've had you know many many other experiences in nature since then as well in in the uh, southwest of the USA, for example, where I did my undergraduate studies. Um, but I would find that those moments alone, especially, were those times where I felt the most um, alive, the most recharged, the most invigorated. Um, I would find that I would I would be uh, Forest or nature would be asking me to tune in to listen to what it was saying. There's certain laws and and uh, an order that you know when you listen carefully enough or attentively enough that you realize this order is governing nature and and all of us. And so I was very grateful at at very those formative teenage years in my life to have kind of divined that, have tapped into that that realization that there's an order to nature, a beauty to nature, to the quiet moments of nature and, and, and for nature reminding me of that. Um, but then when you have in your mind, these moments, and then you witness someone throw fast food garbage out of the window of a moving car, for example, it hits home that we, you know, we've lost our respect for the world and our capacity to listen, to observe, um, and, so for me, I think it was those sort of very, very, sort of very simple, but but super strong feelings that I had in an early age that, man, nature is absolutely gorgeous in a very intrinsic way. Um, but more than that, I have a lot to thank for nature having, uh, you know, uh, uh, reminded me of the importance of listening to it. So I'm working in the environment sector, not only because of the awesome places I've been privileged to experience throughout my, my life. But, but I sincerely think that more, that our connection to nature makes us better people. It makes us more open, more listening, more empathic.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, and so for me that it was those really, really, really important moments at, at that early age, uh, as well. And a number of other factors, of course, I, I had really, uh, excellent parents who, uh, uh, gave me these opportunities, but uh, but it was those experiences that really set me on a, a course yeah. for wanting to be that loud voice for the quiet voice of nature. You know, to to be a champion, to be to be a little bit of a, a louder mouthpiece for for uh, the environment <laughs> that doesn't speak yeah. up as loudly
0: as I do. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally understand. Yeah. So yeah. thank you very much for this enthusiastic um, answer. Sure. Um, now, coming to another question, your work has included a wide array of topics like land tenure, forest legality, and traceability, yes. forest certification, value chain <laughs> improvement, dealing with topics of illegal trade and timber and wildlife across various geographies. <laughs> like ten years working in different countries in Africa, <laughs> three years in Asia, um, yeah, like Thailand and China. Is there a connecting element? How have the work experience challenged your perspectives? What motivates you today to work on these challenges? So
1: Absolutely. Well, I see the I see the thread if if no one else does. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's true. I have my CV is very uh varied. Um but 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 nonetheless, I think it it does there is some coherence to it. From the get-go as I said, yes. what has fascinated me is our humanities relationship with the natural world, you know, my first degree was cultur- cultural cultural yeah. anthropology, and, you know, I think very much the disposition or the you know the 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 situation of the anthropologist is somebody who tends to sit back and observe the norms, the cultural traditions of a group of people, and tries to understand why those norms those uh, cultural traditions have come about, What you know, what have been the the, the set of, of circumstances that has brought about the formation of a, of a particular culture in s- this way compared to another culture down the road or across, across the water. So for me, that's been very, very interesting. Um, and as much as I hold the natural world dear, I'm equally fascinated by what makes us as human beings tick? Why do we do the things that yes. we do? Um, so the professional choices I would say that I've made over my career reflect these two preoccupations, one for protecting nature and the other for understanding the ways in which we can change human behavior to achieve a better balance between human living needs and environmental health. You know, So all of my career choices um, are, are bound to, together by this interest in better understanding a few of the main levers of behavior change and helping to put in place the measures to do just that, to change the behavior so that we can live better, uh, we can be better stewards of the environment of our, of our world. You know, over the years, for example, I've come to realize that the linkage between environment and governance, between environment and management, environment and poverty, all of them are connected. You know, all of the jobs have it, it, all of the jobs I've had have had to tackle um, this issue of environmental management through those channels. Through those, so I very much see this linkage yeah. between all of these things, and all of those things are, as I say, those various levers of behavior change. How can we improve our institutions uh, if we talk about? Uh, environmental governance, for example, how can we improve our institutions, our laws, our frameworks, the way that we organize ourselves, um, and how can we improve the uh, the financial instruments, both the carrots and the sticks, to um, to 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 bring about the change that we we want to have? You know, it's very much about that. How can we uh, tackle the issue of poverty uh, and um, uh, uh, in doing so, uh, uh, maybe relieve some of the pressures on on the environment and so on. So that, that has really been sort of the very broad um, my the, my very broad compass, my very broad orientation as to how I've gone about. In terms of geographically, yes, I'm also've also been across the map. Um, and that's really been more down to, you know, the opportunity presenting itself. You know, probably, Alexandra, yeah. as well as I, yeah. that many of the jobs that um, that that uh, are available for us uh, in international development yeah. people are uh, are, are uh, across the world and um, they are of a contractual nature. So, you know, when the when the World Bank funding comes up, then you've got a project sure, in X sure. country for 2 yeah. years and then when that project ends, you yeah. have to to look for other things. So, the more geographically flexible you could be, the more opportunity, you know, employment opportunities would would uh, be available to me. And I tended to be very open and uh, embracing of different experiences yeah. That's, that explains uh, 10 years in Africa, six, five, six years in, in Asia and so on.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, great. Um, no, no coming back to your work at International network for bamboo and Rattan, so in your current position at Imbar, you're promoting yes. an intergovernmental bamboo and um, rattan network. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your work at INBAR? So what are your responsibilities and how you could bring in your experience um, from, the, from the past work? Sure.
1: Uh, well, in a nutshell, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, I'm the director of the global program here at the uh, INBAR headquarters, the secretariat based in Beijing, China. Um, yeah. Uh, my job essentially is two jobs in one, my two main jobs in one. On one hand, uh, with the Director General, I'm responsible for uh, raising funds for new initiatives, um, and so I, I, uh, we receive various generous, a uh, very generous uh, uh, contribution from uh, China government through uh, yeah. our lead. Yeah. Uh, agencies, the Na- National Forestry Grasslands Administration, um, but to supplement or to cushion uh, and and catalyze that uh, the 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 financial contribution that China government makes, we look for uh, funding from other partners. Um, some of our uh, Uh, Partners down the years have included IFAD, International Fund for Agricultural Development, FAO, World Bank, ADB, and so on. Uh, And so, uh, those funds, those restricted funds, allow us to do the work globally uh, that is a part of our mandate to demonstrate uh, projects, to, to actually implement projects and activities for our 45. Uh, INBAR member countries. Uh, and um, so that's our job number one. Job number two is I oversee that work. So I oversee, I support INBAR's ongoing mm-hmm. initiatives, mainly through the regional offices in India, Ethiopia, Cameroon, Ghana, and Ecuador.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So for people maybe which are not too um, into this topic like Bamboo and rattan. Um, maybe you can name some typical products which can be made out of them. So maybe there are some specific highlight- highlights.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, you've got me. You've got me talking uh, on my favorite subject. So um, you can cut me off anytime time <laughs> if I start. To... <laughs> um, you know, bamboo is uh, appealing for, uh, as we all know, for its structural properties. It has a tensile strength equal to or even greater than some steels, uh, and a compression strength two times greater than concrete. So we're talking about something that, uh, when used properly can be transformed into innumerable products and applications. In fact, there's, it's been estimated that there's over 10,000 different products that can be made from bamboo. Well, that's Um, impressive. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, so you think about it. I mean, it's the, the, the sky's the limit. In the everyday world, we see bamboo in toothpicks, in incense sticks, baskets, mats, blinds, toothpicks, chopsticks, and the list goes on and on. Chopsticks. There's around forty billion pairs of disposable chopsticks that are made annually in China every single year. So, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of. Uh, uh, a, a presence of bamboo in a ubiquitous, sort of everyday kind of way, and really, when you think bamboo, about bamboo, that's really what you tend to think about. Or what I tend to think about is is uh, products uh, that aren't very sophisticated to to make, um, but that have been a part of our our society for uh, you know a number of decades now. Um, one big sector of expansion, I think, for bamboo products that really excites me is in the area is in the energy sector, which has massive benefits in keeping trees standing. I mean, the, cha- the theory of change is very simple. Essentially, it goes like this: If we harness bamboo's latent bioenergy, the bioenergy, the, the biomass within the bamboo, that spells less demand for fuel wood. We can keep more trees standing because it's a, a viable substitute for uh, the fuel wood that is collected yeah. by people around the world. Um, you know, and, and if you look, uh, if you look around the world, you see that uh, invariably, uh, most of the cu- cultures, most of the societies, the countries, especially in the Southern hemisphere or in the de- developing world, uh, particularly, uh re- heavily rely on wood fuel and charcoal, wood charcoal for their, uh, for their cooking needs, for their thermal needs and so on for their household energy needs. So bamboo charcoal, Bamboo briquettes, bamboo pellets, even bamboo for gasification processes is possible, and it's happening. It's happening in in lots of African countries, and we're, so these are, for example, some of the projects and initiatives that Inbar is having uh, in in Africa, uh, are doing just that. They're they're really trying to uh, develop strong business cases and and make a, a good. A strong, compelling case for uh, bamboo as a as a source of biomass, but not just energy. Bamboo winding composite technology. There's a there's a company in Zhejiang Province, China, um, that has invested about ten years. They've done a lot of R and D, uh, and just now, ten years later, that R and D is bearing significant fruit. Because the technology that they've developed, this particular technology of taking bamboo, chopping it up into a composite material, uh, blending it with a a certain resin, um, and winding it, having this this winding technology, um, it has. So many different applications. They're making storm drainage pipes out of it now. They're making shock-resistant shells of high-speed bullet train carriages out of it now. There's a lot of potential there too for um, for 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 this sort of a a, a material, this composite material, to um, to expand it in in application and scale
0: and scope in every other way. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of high-tech applications. Um, On the way, um, including bamboo. So I also heard of building um, skyscrapers, not skyscrapers, but multiple um, um, stock um, houses out of um, bamboo and um, timber.
1: Absolutely, bamboo for construction. Uh, Inbar runs a task force on bamboo for construction, which is a, as the name suggests, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a group of individuals, experts in their field in construction, architects, structural engineers, that are um, doing studies as we speak and in developing international standards under ISO uh, to enable bamboo to feature more, to be integrated more, either as as a element a standalone element in itself to make a, a a building or to be integrated in with other materials like concrete like steel like wood yeah. Um, yeah. bamboo for construction round pole and composite bamboo for low low income disaster resistant structures in in the developing world but yeah. also high-end aesthetically pleasing structures I, I, I there was a article about a famous Austrian-born architect who's based in Chiang Mai, Thailand now, who's won awards for his gorgeous uh, bamboo structures. And then closer to home in my neck of the woods, um, Hong Kong, a gentleman named Martin Tam has made a name for himself in promoting bamboo as a scaffolding material. Much cheaper and much quicker, much cheaper than steel, and the traditional material used for scaffolding and much quicker to assemble. Uh, So lots of stuff. I mean, bamboo nowadays is finding its way into the dashboards of BMWs, of Lexuses. Um, And so it's even in China, there are companies exploring bamboo as the skin material for huge wind turbine blades. So talk about a a twofer or a win-win. Not only are you promoting uh, you know, renewable energy through uh, the development of wind technology, but you're using the you know, you're util- utilizing a much more renewable resource than uh, fiberglass, which is what they tend to be made of, yeah. um, for the skin of these massive turbine wind blades. Uh, so it's pretty exciting yeah. stuff, yeah, um, and not to mention, of course, the yeah, the application in uh, in in plantings. The Netherlands and India are using it. As a As a way to reduce noise and pollution on the side of highways and so on so lots of lots of different applications
0: well, so I, I see um, all of these products um, these thousands of products uh, make up a really big um, sector so I just read on your website it's we're talking about sixty billion u s dollars sector of size um, so how Is INBAR positioning in this sector and how um, do your members benefit from being part of INBAR? Good question.
1: Well, the way that INBAR members benefit uh, from being members of INBAR, uh, members pay uh, membership dues and and membership dues are are based on uh, global trade statistics of that particular country, global trade in Bamboo rattan. Um, but largely, I mean, we, you know, our, our mandate is really quite simple. And that is that if, if you are, and that is to serve the, uh, the interests of member states. So the answer to your question is at once simple, but also, uh, varied simple because it's, as I say, it's to serve the interests of members, member and by member states, but varied because every state. Ha, has a different interest in bamboo. Um, so, one yeah. one country, for example, might their their interest might be in landscape restoration, bamboo for landscape restoration, the amelioration of degraded lands, um, the bringing back uh, long fallow agricultural lands, or, and so on. While another country, their interest might be in you know stamping out the scourge of or reducing uh, deforestation. Uh, and reducing uh, the use of uh, forests for uh, for wood fuel uh, and so on. So yeah. every country has a slightly different uh, orientation and, and a set of interests as it relates to bamboo. And and also, of course, it's, it's important to mention the development level too, you know, a level yeah. of which they, you know, not you can't uh, plunk down a, a sophisticated bamboo industry in a country that's not necessarily ready for it. Um, so... Uh, it it has to happen uh, progressively, and, and every country is different. Uh, what Inbar does is we uh, we try to you know tailor uh, interventions and, and, uh, and based on uh, countries' interests, we try to tailor interventions according to their interests and, and ability uh, and you know absorptive capacity, you could say, their ability to to take on uh, and introduce uh, bamboo. But, I mean, the starting point really is very simple. It's that we've long felt that bamboo and rattan, which is the other side of this coin that we don't talk about enough, really in my mind but but bamboo and rattan are are two of the most widely used yeah. non timber forest products, and yet so still very under exploited underutilized yes, and so our our goal is. How can we work with our member states integrate to, to help them integrate these two wonderful plants into their development strategies, into their green growth uh, action plans and so on? So that's, yeah. that's the main thing that we do. Um, and we do that through policy, yeah. uh, policy formulation and demonstration projects and applied research.
0: I am, and I guess also our listeners are especially interested to learn how do you see the potential of bamboo and rattan to restore healthy landscapes and its potential also for local income generation?
1: Well, already INBAR member countries have pledged to restore 5 million hectares of degraded land with bamboo plantations by 2020 under the Bond Challenge. Uh, And uh, You know, there are numerous publications that uh, substantiate the fact that bamboo forests contribute to an increase in soil organic carbon compared to subtropical forest. And as well as that, bamboo can improve the general soil health, the health of the soils. Soils under bamboo show relatively high pH value, which helps to neutralize acidity. And the plant provides the bamboo Provides high level of organic matter and nutrients, including calcium, magnesium, zinc. So there's a innumerable. There's lots of ways how bamboo has such great potential in restoring degraded lands. We make it quite clear that you know we don't we're, we don't think that bamboo. We're quite vehement about this. and We want to be clear. We're not suggesting or pr- promoting that bamboo uh, somehow replace any kind of already existing forests. I think for us, yeah. the most important thing is that bamboo be seen as a viable, uh, solution or, or a viable element among a whole set of different uh, ideas and solutions out there, uh, for, uh, country's landscape restoration plans. So, um, you know, it's not just the soil and it's not just the carbon, it's also the water level. Um, we're currently doing a study now that, that looks at, um, the ability of bamboo and the, uh, the rhizomes, the root structures underneath the ground to capture, to filter, uh, to water and to arrest erosion and and siltation of dams and waterways and so on so.
0: So my question is also addressing a little bit potentially also the downsides in bamboo production. So I think there are um, a lot of smallholders um, working with bamboos and using it to generate a sustainable income. But I guess there are also some big producers. So I've heard of them, for example, in Colombia and um, where... Yeah, natural bamboo forests also have been turned into monoculture plantations with less biodiversity. So, how mm-hmm. to make sure that bamboo production is not harming the environment?
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, well, I mean, as I said before, you know, the, our our number one uh, objective is is for is to is to utilize bamboo rattan for sustainable development, and that means environmental protection. It means economic protection. Um, and, it, and the social, uh, you know, the third stool of the three-legged stool of sustainability, of course, as well, the social aspect, you know, the cultural heritage aspects, which we oftentimes overlook. Um, uh, it's true. Uh, and, and, and I think the, the important thing, I think when you talk about the, uh, sustainability of bamboo is in my view, it, you have to. And our, I think my goal is in part to try to get bamboo to take root uh, and no pun intended in, in places other than China. You know, when you talk about sustainability of bamboo, you know, China has definitely demonstrated uh, that it can work here. Um, but yes, a few, few other countries have done just that. Um, there's there, you know, sort of, There's a a very scarcity of 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 really excellent examples, and they're they're peppered throughout. Some in Colombia, some you know as as others, or maybe some some trial errors, but then uh, trial trial. Uh, examples, but then ones that have been also fraught with, with errors or, uh, you know, pitfalls of, as you, as you suggested, maybe yeah. um, that the propensity to, to clear cut a forest or put in a monocrop of, 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 uh, of bamboo. So for me, it, you know, China definitely been the leader over the years. Still today, it commands about 90% of the international export market for laminated bamboo flooring. As you mentioned, $60 billion industry globally over half of that is taken up by China's own market. So they are huge. And they've also did, you know, been, been the leader in, in job generation. They've uh, It's estimated that they're going to be uh, generating about 10 million jobs from the bamboo industry here in China. Um, but I think, for starters, to be sustainable, it can't be just about China leading. Other countries have to follow China's lead, create similar enabling conditions, uh, in which bamboo industries can grow sustainably and thrive, enabling conditions I would I would define as as including um, new policy frameworks, new investments, new subsidies, and other financial instruments that you know that are both, as I said before, carrots and sticks. You know, ways that you can. Shape people's behavior so that they do the right thing and they don't do the wrong thing. There are punishments for for peop- for people who put in a, a monocrop of bamboo. That's not what we want. Uh, we want uh, it to be seen as an agroforestry crop. Um,
0: um, yeah. As as an as an outsider, for for example, as responsible bamboo project investor or as a buyer and consumer of bamboo and rattan pro- products, is there a way to distinguish? from the outside perspective between sustainable and non-sustainable bamboo management practices and sourcing? Uh, Yes. I mean,
1: I I think we are, we are done that there's, if you go to our uh, website, the Inbar website, you'll see that there's a host of uh, manuals on the subject on, on, you know, guidelines for sustainable bamboo management uh, and so on. So there's already a fair amount of literature that's out there, uh, uh, related to the subject, uh, where we seem to have come come at a sort of a bit of a standstill, or there's a bit of a inertia, uh, is is maybe in in thinking about certification uh, of uh, sustainable bamboo management
0: practices and so on. Is there a seal like FSC or PEFC in place, or organic for? Um... Um, bamboo as a food source. So are there already some standards in place which consumers can use to distinguish between um, sustainable uh, um, bamboo sources?
1: I'm going to say yes. Um, I know that uh, there's there's been some work by FSC to to develop a a, a very basic uh, standard for uh, sustainable bamboo management. Um, chain of uh, chain of custody certification, um, and so in a, in a general way. But there needs to be a lot more work done in this area, in my opinion. Uh, um, <clears throat> the you know here's the thing. In my view, uh, the case for bamboo from a sustainability point of view uh, is much stronger uh, when the bamboo is on the farm or it's in the forest, and so on. Um, There, you're talking about a plant that can grow, a very fast-growing plant that can grow as much as a meter in a day. Um, uh, It requires relatively few agricultural inputs in the form of watering, pesticides, fertilizers, and so on, uh, and making it very attractive while on the farm uh, or in the natural environment. But I think where bamboo uh, risks losing its its uh sustainability luster or attractiveness is when it's harvested because what happens is then in the processing uh phase um it's it's what you mix the bamboo with particularly uh if you're talking about composite uh materials if you're looking at uh using bamboo for pulp paper or, uh, any kind of other, uh, uh, process that, that grinds it up and turns it into a new thing. Uh, then, uh, there can be more work, I would say in the area of research and development on green epoxies, green resins, uh, and materials that you mix it with and you, and the, that you process it with for further, uh, production down that 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 supply chain, so and and that's where I think there's the greatest greatest. I I'm the most excited about this area because I think there is already work being done. There's a a company out of Germany that's uh, uh, coming up with new patents for green epoxies uh, to mix with with bamboo and so on. So there's a lot of stuff that's being done, but I think that that's really where there's the greatest amount of opportunity uh, to do more.
0: Yeah, Um, so. Our goal at Open Forest is to to motivate smallholders and small-to-medium-sized companies to execute more sustainable management practice. Um, And there's a lot of discussion about certification and incentives, how to uh, motivate um, people and small organizations to, to work more sustainable, use less fertilizers, use less pesticides and things like that. And in preparation to this interview, um, I've picked out a publication for the European Tropical Forest Research Network, Adfern, from 2015 about Vietnam, where you were writing that unless the demand for certified products, so I, I added with price premiums, increases, um, 95% of the small to medium-sized private companies of the sector will remain uninterested in certification, so my question is how can smallholders and small to medium medium companies be motivated or enabled to execute more sustainable management practice, and which role can potentially play a certification in that?
1: Well, well, first off, thanks. Thanks a lot for uh, citing uh, something that I wrote. That's very exciting. So giving me a bit of a shout out. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, you're putting me on the spot. Now, now, um, I, no, I, I very much stand by that. I mean, I, that was a very interesting uh, research that I had done that was uh, working um, uh, on a project with the nature conservancy at the time looking at, uh, not bamboo, but this was more generally, uh, forest certification in, in the Southeast Asia region. Um, and it's true. And I think the answer in my, my answer to that question would be that, um, you can't, you cannot make it, uh, viable for uh, small small medium enterprises without a subsidy. Without the involvement of other actors uh, down the supply chain, or uh, peripheral actors that ha- tend, you know, that might have an interest in in lending help uh, to to a smallholder farmer, uh, for example, uh, uh, the NGO world, you know, many of the uh, big and small uh, uh, NGOs out there. Um, they've, over the years, they've been, uh, an, uh, essential, uh, uh, helper in, in the process of, of making certification viable for small to medium enterprises. Group certification also is a part, part, part of the answer to group certification schemes and so on. Um, but I think that generally speaking, that's, that's first off, that's where it starts because I think the costs of, uh, the auditing costs and all of the costs, the additional costs that one has to incur um, to uh, make their uh, wood lot or bamboo lot, for that matter, um, compliant with the certification standards uh, are, I think, greater than most smallholders can bear. So you have to figure out ways of defraying those costs or, or distributing them among other actors whose Interests are to to also promote certification, but as I say, you know those actors could include uh, civil society, but they could also include downstream um, downstream actors, uh, uh, processing plants yeah. uh, who are hoping to have a you know a regular supply of of raw material, um, uh, and 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 even you know I mean the whole. The whole idea of certification is predicated on the idea that you can command a premium price at the retail level so that, you know, um, so that you and I, when we walk into, uh, in the United States, we have these uh, companies called Lowe's or Home Depot or, you know, one of these big hardware store type uh, groups. But we can, if, if we are inclined to, we can choose to pay a little bit of extra for that Two by four that uh, has been verified to have come from a legally sourced or sustainably sourced timber lot uh, or forest. So um, that's the key thing, I
0: think. Yeah. So 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 the result could say that 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 the market alone, like just price premiums, could not fix <laughs> the 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 problem. So it also requires a certain mind shift that people are willing to invest in more sustainable management practice.
1: Yes, a mind shift, but, but let's not fool ourselves. My, my, my feeling is that, uh, you know, it it takes a little bit more than a mind shift. Yes. I think, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, public campaigns uh, and, you know, awareness raising campaigns can, can, can do something, but they can't, I think most people tend to be the same. We tend to act economically um, and, so if if it's something that you know uh, that uh, that uh, simply uh, you know consumer choice can't itself uh, alone take care of, my feeling is that um, you have to bring in other actors uh, voluntarily. You know, uh, other actors who, whose interest is is to subsidize the uh, the, the work of of smallholder farmers. But then also, I think there's a major role for governments. I think they have a huge role to play. They could play a much even greater role in bringing about a set of public procurement policies that stipulate or require that all timber, let's say, uh, uh, that is to be used for public works projects, whether it be a bridge or a building or what, uh, be, uh, procured from a sustainably managed forest. I, I, you know, the Netherlands is head and shoulders above everybody exactly. else in this regard. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think they are a case study, I think, in a role model for other countries, um, to hopefully follow suit.
0: Yeah. Thank you for this answer. So we are slowly coming to an end with only a few questions left. Um, do you have any advice for aspiring conservation, natural resource management, and environmental gov- governance graduates? So where to place their energy to leverage their positive impact?
1: Hmm. Well, I, I, guess my, I, I guess I have general advice. My, my general advice is just to stay open and, and listen more. Um, you know, less talking, less head down, less texting and walking, um, more head up, more looking around, more listening, more seeing. Um, you know, I think as a general statement, I think our our faculties of perception, our being humanities, I guess, society's faculties of perception have dimmed, I think, in recent generations. You know, we're not as sharp as I think that we used to be in these areas and um you know let's listen to what the environment is telling us let's listen better to each other uh and and in in doing so i think our our responses to the many problems be they environmental or whatever social uh economic but our responses to the problems and the solutions that we come up will be better tailored to what we are hearing. And I think a lot of times, I think people aren't, aren't uh, really clued in. We don't we have our heads down and our phones too much and we don't really uh, look up that much. Um, so I think just be, be listening more and be more open. And a line, in a line with the, the open uh, bit is I would say be open to new experiences. Be open to diversifying your portfolio if you want to put it in financial terms you know, you know, take a, take a chapter out of my book. Uh, you know, I, I, I I didn't do it perfectly, but I'm very um, privileged to have had the experiences I did. Every, every experience I had made me, uh, grow in new ways. Um, I think today is a, is a time when I think most of us, it's not the time of my dad or my mom where they had, they had the same job for a number of years, or you know, ten years, or even fifty years, or however long. Forty years, you know. Today, it's much more. I think uh, the rule uh, for for uh, for 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 new new uh, people on the job scene to try out something for a little bit of time to get some experience, and then you know, parlay that into a new thing so i would say you know every be be open to those experiences too opportunities that take you to a new geography or to a new theme area and when when those students have an interview 20 years later like you're doing the one with me now they'll be able to reflect back and say you know yeah it was that that those rich experiences that you know brought me to where i am today
0: thank you so um in times where set climate change news are dominating too little is said about all the successful projects. Can you give us an example? Are there any specific success stories that particularly maybe showcase also your approach at INBAR?
1: Uh, Sure, sure. I can give you an example of a success story uh, uh, related to landscape restoration. Um, 1960s Uttar Pradesh, a state in central India, And there were 150 brick kilns that were established uh, at that time. This was a time of great development uh, in India, of course. So everybody was building houses and building structures. Bricks were needed. 150 brick kilns were established to meet this growing demand for bricks. But at the cost of swallowing up around 5,000 hectares of topsoil, from this particular area in Uttar Pradesh. So fast forward a number of years and you can imagine there was a reduction in farming livelihoods. The severity of dust storms was increasing and depleted water tables, loss of vegetation, and of course the concomitant increase in poverty conditions. Lots of people migrate, were migrating uh, to you know greener pastures. Um, and so starting in 1996, this was about the same time as INBAR started, uh, was, was actually starting as an organization too. Uh, on about a hundred hectares of land, there's an NGO called uh, Utan and INBAR. We restored, we began to restore about 4,000 hectares in 96 villages and this, uh, by, uh, through bamboo plantings on this very degraded, degraded land that, as I say, was once the site of these brick kilns. <clears throat> and we used it uh, in this particular case. It wasn't a monocrop, by the way. We used it as a, as a as an element in an agroforestry system. We intercropped it with moringa, with guava, um, with a number of other uh, fruit trees and various plants. Um, and as a result, uh, six to seven inches of leaf humus was added to the soil annually. Uh, and bamboo helped to raise the water table by about 15 meters in 20 years. Um, so that was a huge, huge uh, um, success story and, and, and demonstration, you know, case, case, case study that we always uh, ask people, we point to and, and ask people to check out. Uh, another one for you, 1997, same time, about 97, 98, was a watershed moment for bamboo in China too, no pun intended, watershed moment because you had at that time major floods of the Yangtze River uh, and drought also in the Yellow River Basin. Uh, And as a result, the Chinese government launched a huge bamboo restoration project that still goes on to this day. Over 32 million households are are involved in it um, and it's still going on. and that's really, I think, what it takes. It, it takes a combination of concerted efforts from government, from civil society, from uh, research institutes, uh, and smallholder farmers. Everybody has to be involved. In private sector, to 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 just kind of bring about the change that uh, that we're looking for in in, in trying to uh, tap into the to, to the potential of bamboo. There's a lot of stuff I could go on in landscape restoration. But there's a a lot of real neat success stories, and just in the other day, if I can uh, just fast forward to uh, a week ago, I read an article uh, about uh, a Chinese uh, invest a company that's aiming to invest. Wait for it, two billion dollars into Ethiopia for a uh, pulp paper uh, manufacturing company. Two billion dollars. So. Um, that is the has been the sort of probably the biggest newsworthy uh, uh, information that's uh, uh, you know of late here here at inbars uh, we're very excited about this prospect um, so for too long I think bamboo and rattan have sort of they've uh, hovered. At this level of small of of being something of use to small to medium enterprises and smallholder farmer, and that that is true, and that will continue to be true. But I think it will be a real game changer when it sort of breaks beyond that glass ceiling and and then graduates to a level of being the raw material for a major, major company for a huge investment uh, company. And I think that's what really what we're on the verge of on the eve of now uh, with, just this company in Ethiopia is the latest example of that, but there's others as well.
0: Yeah, thank thank you for these great examples, and there I see a big potential to scale up the landscape um, restoration approach with bamboo and rattan. What is your vision for your work and the development um, of forest bamboo landscapes?
1: Forest bamboo landscapes, uh, well, in My, my, uh, my uh, hope is that, uh, you know, as I said before, uh, we've already uh, been able to uh, uh, witness uh, INBAR's member states committing to restoring five and now six million hectares of degraded land with bamboo plantation. But in my view, uh, my hope, my view is that 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 number is just the tip of the iceberg that those commitments could be doubled at least, um, and, and backed up with action. I think that's really my hope now is that, um, that, uh, you know, uh, platitudes and proclamations be converted into acts and actions on the ground. Um, you know, it does, t- it's not an overnight process. It does take time to, uh, develop nurseries to, Allocate land to develop nurseries to establish um, plots of bamboo uh, and and so I, my hope is that in the next decade between where we are now and let's say twenty thirty that we're actually able to see some some boots on the ground, some roots in the ground um, a bamboo roots in the ground and um I think that's really where where it's at with um with my uh, my hope for uh, bamboo landscape restoration. I think my hope uh, and another hope that is corollary to that and related is, is in the area of, of economic prospects too. So environmental protection for sure, um, but we have to also be making a much stronger business case uh, for bamboo uh, and uh, in that area, also, I think bamboo has a lot of potential, especially when you hear such trendy phrases as circular economy floating around um, uh, our circles these days. I think bamboo can play a huge role in really uh, being a good demonstration uh, of 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 having a, of putting in place a, a kind of closed loop or you know less waste, more efficiency sort of circular economy system. You know bamboo if we set it up right can at once be bamboo for landscape restoration and if we have if we locate the uh, the factories and, and the the industries in in a strategic manner um, the waste from a furniture making a bamboo furniture making uh, company or uh, factory can be of course the raw material the offcuts and the waste and the sawdust and the uh, can be the raw material for a, a biomass company down the road, um, and in doing so, you're reducing transportation costs. You're creating these wonderful, uh, uh, you know, highly efficient uh, areas where where bamboo can flourish and people can uh, benefit from it. So those are my two hopes,
0: I would say, moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Brian, for all these in- insights. Um, thank you very much for this interview. And I hope to see you soon. If you want to learn more about the work of Brian and Imbar, please go to their website. It's www.inbar.int. Thank you very much.